Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new variant of COVID the World Health Organization has designated as Omicron, which emerged out of Botswana and is now spreading across southern Africa and has already arrived in Europe and, according to Dr. Fauci, is likely to be here in the United States. Joining us to discuss what is known about the latest mutation of the virus that has killed 5 million people worldwide and over 760,000 in the United States is Shannon Bennett, the Chief of Science and Dean of Science and Research Collections at the California Academy of Sciences, who studies infectious diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. She has led a number of research projects on virus evolution, identification and transmission with funding from the National Institutes of Health, and we will discuss the possibility that this new strain might be resistant to current vaccines and how quickly manufacturers can come up with a new vaccine. Then, with 27 migrants, mostly from Iraq, having drowned in the English Channel last week in a desperate attempt to flee the horrible conditions in Calais to get to the UK in a crowded inflatable boat that quickly sank in the ice-cold water, we will speak with Dr. Philippe Malière, a professor in French and European politics at University College London. He joins us to discuss the outrageous grandstanding by the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who tweeted out a letter to French President Macron claiming to offer solutions to an emigration problem Johnson, as an architect of Brexit, promised would be solved by his devastatingly stupid move to leave the EU. Then finally, we'll look into the human and financial costs of migration from Central America to the United States, with 1.8 million Central Americans attempting to immigrate in the last five years at a cost of $2.2 billion every year, most of which goes to smugglers. Joining us is Sarah Williams, a professor of technology and urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she is the director of the Civic Data Design Lab and the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism. She's the author of Data Action, Using Data for Public Good, and is the co-author of a new report at the Migration Policy Institute, Charting a New Regional Course of Action, The Complex Motivations and Costs of Central American Migration. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Shannon Bennett, the Chief of Science and Dean of Science and Research Collections at the California Academy of Sciences, who studies infectious diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Previously, she was an Associate Professor at the Asia-Pacific Institute for Tropical Medicine and Infectious Diseases, part of the School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii, where she led a number of research projects on virus evolution, identification and transmission, with funding from the National Institutes of Health. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shannon Bennett. 
Thank you, Ian. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the new variant of COVID, uh, Omicron, has rattled the global financial markets. It's even caused the price of oil to drop. But apparently, at this point, what's concerning researchers is that there are more than 50 mutations with this new variant, 30 of which are in the spike protein, which is how it gets into human cells. That makes it pretty alarming, doesn't it? Yes, for, for certain, there are a, there's a concentration of mutations around the part of the spike protein that's called the receptor binding domain. And that's the receptor, the receptor binding domain is uh, the main site that binds to the host cell receptor, the human host cell receptor to gain entry into the host cell. It's also the main target of our antibody defenses that are induced by either natural infection or vaccine uh, vaccines. So what does it mean when it's described as an escape variant? So one of the things that uh, we study is to try to understand whether certain variants, mutations in the variants, will cause the antibodies that we have, that have been, uh, that our immune system has created due to vaccine or natural infection, to bind less efficiently. And uh, that if the mutations cause those antibodies to bind less efficiency, less efficiently, then you could say that that mutant, that variant, has escaped our immune response. Now, uh, there's a lot of room in the term efficiency. So if your antibodies are at a very high titer or level, then uh, you can still have a very effective immune response and the variant won't be able to escape even if the match isn't perfect. So the problem is over time, our antibody levels can wane. There can be fewer of them. And then there's a lot less leniency uh, for a room for error, room for lack, lack of efficient binding, you might say. But as our immune system wanes, the opposite is happening with mutations, right? The longer that everybody on this planet is not vaccinated against this, it's always been a race, has it not, between vaccination and mutation. And this one seems to be very transmissible. We don't know whether it's more deadly or or more potent, I guess. I'm not sure what the right word is. But what we do know is that we're in a race, aren't we, Shannon? Yes. I often think of it as um, the longer we support by uh, having a lot of susceptibles around, the, a large population of viruses, the more diverse that population of viruses uh, will be because the population is so large and that all that diversity represents opportunities. And so when we, when there's an opportunity for a variant that is slightly better, even if it's slightly better in terms of transmitting from person to person or slightly more infectious, the infection takes a bit better when it gets to another person or if it's more resistant to prior immunity, all those forms of better will be quickly uh, given the running room of the field, uh, especially when you have a large number of susceptible humans. So it's really very important that we vaccinate increasing proportions of human populations, or else we're just creating these enormous variant factories 
in parts of the world where vaccinations are not gaining a foothold. Well, in South Africa, only one quarter of the population is fully vaccinated. And in Africa, the whole continent, it's only 6%. Yes, it's very concerning. And there are many countries around the world that are 6% or less even. And so vaccine accessibility is is an is a huge concern and one that even uh, us folks that live in countries or states where vaccination rates are pretty high will always have to be concerned with um, these potential vaccine factor uh, virus factories or variant factories in places where vaccines are not accessible. So so far, this uh, virus has spread from it actually originated, I believe, in Botswana. And the World Health Organization first reported it on the 24th of November, but I believe it was first detected earlier on the 9th of November. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding, right. Yes. That it was a a case that was reported in Botswana on the 9th of November, but the sequence wasn't reported to WHO until the uh, the 23rd or 24th, I believe. Maybe it was the 24th. Right. So what do we know so far about this variant? So I mentioned before the three things of greatest concern, maybe four, are the transmissibility, the infectiousness, whether the virus is uh, resistant to prior immunity, whether it's vaccination induced or naturally induced. And of course, the, how it causes disease, how, how severe it might be. So, so far, there's no question that it seems to be um, taking over in terms of the percentage of um, viruses sequenced in South Africa. It's taking over and replacing the Delta variant. And so increasingly, um, almost 70% of all of the viruses now being sequenced in South Africa are this new Omicron variant. And so that suggests that it's definitely uh, more transmissible or infectious. We don't, we can't really say whether it's immunoscape yet for sure based on that data because South Africa isn't, as you mentioned, only 25% or, or less than 25% of people are fully vaccinated. So it's too soon to tell, but it certainly shares many, many mutations with other variants that um, are uh, that hint at the ability to escape prior immunity to some extent. And again, I'm speaking with Shannon Bennett, who's the Chief of Science and Dean of Science and Research Collections at the California Academy of Sciences, who studies infectious diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Previously, she was an associate professor at the Asia-Pacific Institute of Tropical Medicine and Infectious Diseases, part of the School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii, where she led a number of research projects on virus evolution, identification, and transmission with funding from the National Institutes of Health. So why do you think it's called, uh, this new variant called Omicron, which is over halfway down the Greek alphabet, the last one being Delta? Uh, Is there any reason why that jumped down to Omicron? So basically the WHO instigated this new naming system to try to clarify for the general public the different variants that are recognized. And not all of them are recognized as variants of concern. So there's been many variants that have been given 
a Greek letter name that are variants of interest, for example. But uh, basically, we, we all probably remember the UK strain that first emerged in the UK, and that was called Alpha, and, and we've sort of been marching up the alphabet since then. They did skip. We, we were all thinking they would call it new, as in NU. That's, that really hasn't been, been given out yet, that Greek letter name. But uh, it's a confusing with the word new, a common N-E-W word. So they, they went to O, which is Omicron, in the Greek letter alphabet. So at this point, Dr. Fauci has said that this is very likely that it's already ha- arrived in the United States. It just hasn't been detected yet. It seems that apart from South Africa and Botswana, the Netherlands is probably getting more infections with a plane load of 61 people tested positive on Friday in in, um, the Netherlands. And then you've got a whole bunch of countries around the world closing their doors to people from South Africa and Botswana, which is actually irritating the South Africans. They feel that they're being punished instead of praised is there any other way to get around this? I mean, it seems like you can restrict it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to work. Is that right? Well, you pointed out that this case was actually first, uh, the, the, the case first was uh, occurred on the 9th of November. So you might imagine there is already, has already been traveled to, to many, many countries. So, you know, this morning it was, detected in six countries, now it's in eight countries, confirmed confirmed cases. So it's probably already spread. And, and I noticed that the UK already reinstigated uh, mask wearing policies. So at the end of the day, uh, probably the, the, the horses left the barn and it might be too late to close the doors and many countries should probably become prepared to get a, another surge, just like we had with Delta. So, so far, it's the UK, the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Germany, Belgium, Israel, any other countries that... Italy. Italy. So, as I mentioned, Dr. Fauci says it's it's probably already here. Would you agree with that? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if, if there are potential cases uh, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are 5 million people around the world who've died so far... 760,000, I think it is now, in the United States. There's been more deaths actually this year than there was last year, which surprises me. Yes, yes. Well, I think that if you look at the course of the pandemic, it's the, every wave seems to be more and more intense than the one before. So, you know, last year we were actually still in the halcyon days of um the early part of the of the spread of this virus, and so the waves were not as as intense. So I'm not as surprised that that we're still seeing the more and more cases are out there, the the greater the number of deaths, just as a proportionality of the number of cases. The more people that are vaccinated, though, can tip that proportionality in our favor. So we must get vaccinated. Right, but the waves are the different mutations, right? And we have a new wave now with Omicron. Right. In some cases, the waves are correlated with a new mutation. It started in, you know, the summer of 2020 when we had the D614G variant, uh, which is the ancestor of all of these variants we've been talking about, the alpha, uh, the gamma, the the beta, and the 
the Delta and now the Omicron. But uh, in some cases, the waves are correlated with a change in human behavior where we've uh, released certain social uh, distancing guidelines or mask mandates, and then you, you can also get a surge. So we don't know yet, and I'm sure there's a lot of research going on. I believe Pfizer and Moderna and others are working on it right now. BioNTech, the, the German company that worked with Pfizer for their vaccine, they say that within 100 days they'll have a, an updated version of its vaccine to deal with this new variant. Is that realistic? Yes, actually, that's very realistic. And it's because of this message RNA technology that's being used to uh, develop the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines. They're extremely, you can adjust the basic RNA message to match the most common variant, and you can do it much more quickly than uh, we ever could before this technology was in our hands. So if you tweak the vaccine that you have now that deals with the Delta and all the previous ones, then you tweak it a little more to deal with Omicron, but it deals with all of the previous ancestors. Is that how it works? Well, most likely, and and these are, um, you know, the actual message RNA that's being put into these vaccines, the sequence, the sequences are proprietary. So don't we, know, we don't know exactly what the different companies are using, but they would have a, a, a cocktail of different messages that might, that would capture many of the variants. And one of the things that we're seeing over and over again is that there are mutations that are shared in common over and over again. So there, there's convergent evolution, even though Omicron is a completely different lineage from Delta and uh, from Alpha as well and, and Gamma and others, they, there are common mutations that keep cropping up. Uh, so, so certainly, one would imagine that the formula, the message RNA sequence, would capture many of these recurring mutations as well as others. Well, you mentioned the proprietary nature of uh, of these vaccines in terms of how they deal with the the strains and with the sequencing of these strains. President Biden on Friday called for intellectual property waivers on COVID vaccines. Is that likely to happen? I mean, first of all, do you think that's necessary? It would seem to be. You've got to get the whole world vaccinated ASAP, don't you? I mean, for for most of these companies are, well, all of these companies are using the same basic information. And so the same kinds of publicly available sequences are at everybody's fingertips to develop these vaccines on. So I don't know if that would be a real game changer. But yes, I do think that this is the time when we all have to work together, everybody that can, to produce these vaccines. So it, it could be that the basic protocol for developing these mRNA vaccines uh, could be made more transparent, but it's we're in pretty good shape. The technology is not a complete rocket science. It's solid science that could and should be used to create uh, vaccines to scale, to global scale. But the other ones, if you could call them competitive vaccines, the Sinovac, the Chinese one, and Sputnik, the Russian one, they're not mRNA, are they? And neither is uh, Johnson & Johnson. Right, right. Uh, they're DNA vaccines. Uh, there are protein-based vaccine, protein vaccines out there. So there are different, tech, different technologies. The mRNA vaccines are showing uh, over and over again that they are creating the best 
um, immune response. And that would be where I would put my hopes that we can have a, a more effective global response to this vaccine. But I mean, it's just like everything. It's good to have to diversify your toolkit to make sure that there are different ways of, of addressing this. And I, I don't know if you remember at the beginning that problems with some of them RNA vaccines was that they were very susceptible to degradation if, if, if the vials couldn't be kept cold or they had a, sh a very limited shelf life. So other vaccine technologies are good in some cases because they are more robust to um, not being kept cold or sitting on the shelf a little longer. Right, and in tropical countries like in Africa, the particularly the Pfizer one, which has to be kept really cold, so I imagine there are limitations there. Yes. But Shannon Bennett, thank you so much for filling us in on the latest details. And one yeah. hopes, just in closing here, my hope, uh, and I don't know whether you share it or not, is that if this new variant is as bad as we're told, do you think it's going to wake up people, the anti-vaccine people, to, to basically, you know, realize that look, you ought to be able to see the writing on the wall. This thing's getting worse, and you got to stop it. Do you think that might change their minds? I certainly hope so. I think sometimes there's misinformation out there that makes certain people who are against vaccination say, well, what good is it going to do if we get new variants that are immune escapees? And I will just caution folks that when we say they're an immune escape, it what it really means is that the, uh, the vaccine or natural induced immunity might not be as effective as it initially was, but it's still much more effective than never having been vaccinated at all. And it's certainly very effective at preventing disease and death. So oftentimes when we talk about things being an immune escape, the vaccine is no longer um, as effective at, at blocking transmission, but it's still so much better than no vaccine at all at preventing disease and death and pretty darn good at preventing transmission or limiting it. Well, Shannon Bennett, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Shannon Bennett, who's the Chief of Science and Dean of Science and Research Collections at the California Academy of Sciences, who studies infectious diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Previously, she was the Associate Professor at the Asia-Pacific Institute for Tropical Medicine and Infectious Diseases, part of the School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii, where she led a number of research projects on virus evolution, identification and transmission with funding from the National Institutes of Health. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the outrageous grandstanding by the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who tweeted out a letter to French President Macron claiming to offer solutions to the emigration problems Johnson, as an architect of Brexit, promised would be solved by his devastatingly stupid move to leave the EU.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now, Dr. Philippe Malier, who's a professor in French and European politics at University College London. Before coming to University College London, he was a research fellow at the French Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique and at the European University Institute in Florence. And in 2007, Philippe Malier was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the Univers- by the University Libre de Bruxelles. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Philippe Malier. Hello there. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Philippe, from the UK. And there is obviously a serious problem between the leaders of France and the UK. And Boris Johnson um, sent a letter to the French president, Emmanuel Macron, but he published it. It was on Twitter uh, with uh, five points of how they can improve conditions and policing between the two countries to prevent the tragedy that just happened in the channel where 27 migrants, mostly from Iraq, drowned in an inflatable boat. So obviously this is not how diplomacy is done. You don't send letters between heads of state and publish them in the open. So the French feel that Johnson is grandstanding for his domestic audience at the expense of dealing with a serious problem. And furthermore, much of the reason why things aren't working out as they should is because of Brexit, which was engineered by Boris Johnson. So is that what's going on here, that Johnson is trying to cover his... uh, backside, as they say? Yes, I I think I would quite agree with what you've just said. I think you've basically nailed the issue on the head by pointing out that, in fact, uh, of course, the blame game has really started following, and let's not forget that, the tragedy. You know, 27 people died in the um, channel, which is the sea separating uh, England and, and the French coast, it's not the first time, but I think it's probably the number. Normally, we are unfortunately quite used to seeing uh, people drowning in droves almost in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, sort of uh, in the south of Europe, Italy, uh, in the sort of Italian or Greek uh, coast. A, a tragedy of that magnitude, I think, is quite new. That's why I think it was a, a shock. And that's why the rebuttal uh, and the blame game has started very strongly. And I think I also agree with your point about, in fact, technically, the letter was never sent out to Macron uh, by, uh, by Johnson. Johnson, in fact, it's something which normally you never do in uh, diplomacy, particularly when the topic is so sensitive and when the situation is so serious, is that the letter was simply put, were tweeted. So uh, all the people, you know, spend uh, some time, you know, browsing and and reading tweets got the news before the French president himself, which is bizarre. And I think uh, Macron quite understandably took it badly and just openly said what was rumored in French circles for a long time, i.e. that uh, Boris Johnson is not a serious politician. You don't do that. But I think this is only part of the problem. This is a technicality which shows one thing is that the relations between the two governments are pretty bad. They've been bad for a long time. Of course, the Brexit issue was, uh, has been a vexing issue between the two countries. But because the two countries, you know, have to uh, have been managing and rather badly, I would say, the question of migration, i.e. people coming essentially for, 
from southern countries in Africa mostly and trying to make it to 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 England via France. And I, I think there's a number of things of course which are which are going on, but the very fact that Britain has left the EU makes it much more difficult for uh, Boris Johnson now, first of all, to take the the more high ground, because clearly uh, he's on the defensive, and secondly, to order the French what ought to be done. This said, doesn't mean that Macron and the French are doing the perfect thing. They're, they're not. You know, I think I suppose that we could probably elaborate on, on, on those points, but just to, to briefly summarize them now is, on the one hand, you have the French probably uh, taking a very a very heavy-handed approach to the migration issue in Calais, which is the main uh, city uh, by the coast, facing England, and, you know, the French police uh, confiscating, lacerating tents, makeshift uh, shelters, when it is, you know, freezing at the moment, it is freezing in that region, and uh, leaving people, you know, already running from, from, from their country for political reasons, mostly not economic reasons, uh, in the cold. And some people die. And so that's really the main issue. A lot of human rights peop uh, people, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in NGOs have been denouncing Macron for that. But on the other hand, the British uh, clearly uh, have been making uh, quite outrageous uh, claims to the French. And one of them in that infamous letter, which was tweeted, was that, well, uh, we would like to uh, police uh, your border, but not, you know, from Dover in, on the English coast, but we would like to send our police on the French coast and, and, and police, you know, migration uh, there, which means... Uh, Two things, it means the French are not doing a good job, or secondly, it means that also Britain isn't doing a good job. Let's not forget that the key, uh, uh, the key claim made by Johnson and all the Brexiteers was that once we uh, get out of the EU, we, we will sort of um, get back our, our sovereignty, we, meaning you know, we will be able to stop migration altogether. That's not the case, of course. Well, of course, there's been a dispute over fisheries prior to this, and then you've got the AUKUS dispute as well. So things have not been going well for some time, but this is really rubbing salt into the wound. Uh, and Macron, of course, in response to this tweeted-out letter, said one does not communicate from one leader to another on questions such as these by tweet and by letters that one then makes public and the spokesperson for the French government said that France is sick and tired of Britain's double talk and outsourcing of its problems. Now, these migrant camps uh, in Calais, uh, one was referred to as the jungle, which, uh, uh, as you mentioned, the police rout them regularly. There was also, I think it was in 2016, there were some serious demonstrations coming from the French right, the anti-Islamic demonstrators. They, they clashed with police in 2016, and uh, Marine Le Pen's far-right national rally party, they're running in the elections. And, of course, this puts um, Macron on the spot. Their platform is zero immigration, and uh, Michel Barnier, the former EU, EU Brexit negotiator, is running for the, the right-wing Republican Party, and he's vowed to crack down on immigration. So both in the UK and in France anti-immigrant uh, feelings are political ammunition, are they not? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think a point to make is that if you look at the French uh, political spectrum and the main actors, uh, left and right, of course, the left is now quite weak and in a position, so it doesn't really, is, no, is, no, is in no position really to, to exert much influence on, on the debate. But if you look at, you know, um, who are the sort of... Uh, uh, sort of the main actors in French politics, Macron, President Macron himself, of course, was, will be running again next April to be re-elected as president. But then the, the far right, which has risen so much over the past years, now you, you mentioned Marine Le Pen uh, with the um, national rally, is far right party, but now there's a newcomer, this uh, TV pundit uh, and essayist, Eric Zemmour, and those people, of course, when they talk about migration and turn their uh, their gaze to toward the, the French coast and Calais, they they of course will, will try to make political gains out of it by, you know, spouting their usual uh, demagogy, anti-migrant, anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric. So, of course, Macron, and this is probably uh, something um, human rights NGOs and the left are very critical of them because. He came to power with people knew he would be economically neoliberal, but I think there was some hope that he would stop uh, and sort this uh, uh, vexing issue of you know this Calais problem. Uh, and in fact, he, he's he's not exactly done that. He's he's not held by the British, to be fair. But on the other hand, uh, you know he knows very well what the French police uh, are doing in Calais, and what they're doing is absolutely ugly. Uh, it's absolutely inhumane, the, the way they treat uh, migrants, and it doesn't solve the problem. N none of the two sides are, at the moment, uh, politically, intellectually, in a position really to come up with the right answers. And there are answers to be, to be, uh, to be, to be, to be given to, to that situation. The answer is essentially, you know, now uh, we are we are faced with a big issue with smugglers, you know, criminals, gangs, organized gangs, very well organized now, who are asking uh, lots of money to the poor refugees to cross the channel. So they do that on very light, inflate, inflatable uh, boats, and that's why one of them, you know, they charge 50 people on it with a very weak, uh, small engine. And that's why, you know, the sea wasn't good. And even if the sea is good, this is a very risky crossing. People know that. But how can you uh, stop all those migrants? You know, uh, recently, there were uh, up to, to 1,000 people who managed to cross the channel. They, they couldn't be stopped. So it's impossible. So the, the only answer given by the two parties, the French and British government, has been to, 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 to say, well, we, we're going we're gonna to stop uh, the, the smugglers, but that's virtually impossible. Even with the new technology, with drones, uh, Johnson's came up with a, an idea of uh, creating artificial waves so that so that the crossing would be so perilous, so dangerous that no one would. Of course, it it will not disrupt uh, people to that. People are desperate. They are political refugees. They fled their own country because their life was at risk, uh, and they have made it. Uh, as you say, mostly from Sudan, Iraq, Iran. It's a long journey to get to Calais. And they're very close. They could almost, uh, they can physically on a good day see the coast of England. So it's not, if you like, the, the threat of having, you know, those, uh, the, the police uh, uh, patrolling the sea, which is, which is going to stop them. They're going to try. 
Some try and, and, and die, but others manage to get to the other side. So that's why it's a very, very bad policy and very poor thinking on the part of the French and British to their only reaction is that is is more policing. Uh, but that will not stop, in fact. And it's been going on for a long time. Of course, the answer would be to have a multilateral concerted solution to it, whereby Britain would take probably a greater share of migrants. A thing to, to note, which is very important, there's a, Britain is regarded uh, traditionally as a country which has been, you know, an island which has been welcoming uh, political refugees uh, for a very long time. Think of Karl Marx. Karl Marx uh, found a refuge there. The French writer Victor Hugo also was there, and so many others. For their political opinions, they could find a place to live safely in the UK. This is no longer the case. The times have changed. And Britain now is at the bottom, literally in Europe, of all countries in terms of number of refugees. Uh, France takes four to five times more refugees, and Germany even much more. And if you want to, say, to, to talk about which country is taking the more refugees in Europe, it's Turkey. So that shows you exactly what the problem is. There is this is a pro political problem, and the reason why Britain now has been so reluctant to, uh, to take uh, refugees is, of course, it's the, the legacy of Brexit. Brexit was supposed to deliver... Uh, a, a zero uh, immigration, which is, of course, unsustainable. Macron, on his side, is, of course, uh, looking at his own re-election with a far right which is threatening. And so, of course, he can't, um, he can't back down on this issue either. So this is where we are, unfortunately, and, and that's why I think very wrong uh, political decisions are being made now. Well, but the French position, I think, makes more sense, which is that Let's face it, Boris Johnson was one of the main architects of Brexit, and Brexit has been a catastrophe. It took, you know, months and months, years, years of paralysis in British politics and in, in the British economy, and they still haven't made their deals with the U.S. and other countries to make up for the loss of their European markets. And the French are arguing, and the EU are arguing, that these immigration problems are both global and local in terms of the entire EU. As you mentioned, people have been drowning in the Mediterranean now for years. And, you know, the Pope issued a statement a couple of years back about what an immense human tragedy this is. So this is clearly something that should be dealt with on a multilateral level, and that was the whole point of the EU. So if you decide, in Johnson's case, to go it alone, then the onus is on you, and frankly... I think the French are right. This is double talk. He's just trying to worm his way out of his own stupid situation that he brought about. Yes, I, 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 will, I will agree with what you say. I think it's clearly the, the sort of the consequences of Brexit are so bad. Uh, you know, uh, Brexit has been uh, for sure an economic failure. Geopolitically, uh, it's not working very well for, for Britain. It has lost, really, its political clout and influence uh, over the world. I think uh, Johnson a bit naively thought that would make it a, a, a bigger actor with the, with the U.S. And, in fact, the U.S., like the U.K., as part of the EU. Uh, they, they, the U.S. wanted to go along the U.K. and be very close partner, special partner, as long as it was in the EU, outside the value of the of the UK has, has largely diminished. You know, the, so it's really it is backfiring, and people know it. Economically, it is proven. 
uh, geopolitically as well and humanly, and that's now the issue of migration, that's really the third uh, failure because when the UK were part of uh, the uh, EU, of course, according to the uh, Dublin Convention, Mark III, the third version of it, uh, well, you know, uh, to simplify a little bit that convention, what the convention says, you know, it's the first uh, <clears throat> port of entry where which uh, and the country should deal with the, the migrants. So essentially, it, it is a bit of an unfair um, agreement because essentially the, the bulk of migrants have to stay or have to be dealt with by Italy or Greece because this is essentially where most migrants coming from the south arrive. And... And it's been really, probably with the notable exception of Germany, which a few years ago under Merkel decided to take up to a million refugees, uh, other countries, France, but worse than that, the UK, which was still at the time in the EU, have been extremely reluctant. So I think it's part of the political climate uh, in the two countries, whereby, uh, you know, the the theme of migration and migrants is constantly used by demagogues and the far right. And most now and more sadly, you know, mainstream politicians, including some on the left in France, I can think of some, would go along that idea that, you know, uh, migration is an issue for, 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 for the economy, for the, for the local population. So one should have set a threshold to it. And never the issue, and I think that's an important point is raised of, you know, why do we have migration in the first place? I think it's a well-documented fact that migration is one of the consequences of uh, uh, Western powers uh, going into uh, those poor countries, waging wars, uh, and in return, uh, destabilizing regimes. You know, if, why do sure. you have so many problems now coming, so many people coming from Iraq or, or Libya? Right, and, and the 20, never, just to focus on that, because we've, we've got to wrap this up, Philippe, there were 27 people that died in the channel last week. They were mostly from Iraq. And we know that Colin Powell told George W. Bush, you know, it's the so-called pottery bomb analogy if you invade the country if you break it you own it and i think a lot of a lot of blame can be placed on george w bush dick cheney donald rumsfeld and condoleezza rice because these people that died in the channel were from this broken country iraq that the united states broke and just to end on a i think on a slightly positive note philippe some of the local french activists though as bad as the police are in, in routing these poor people, and many of them come. There's one person profiled in a, an article that I just read, Ali Omar, not his real name. He's been in Calais for three months. Uh, he fled Sudan after the Janjaweed militia tried to kill him. Uh, mm-hmm. So those are the kind of people that are there, and local French activists provide uh, soup and sandwiches and try to help. So it's just a human tragedy, and it's just despicable to have these terrible politicians like Boris Johnson grandstanding at the expense of these poor people. It's just unconscionable. And uh, just a, a quick last word from you. Yes, I, I, I agree. This is, let's never forget, you're absolutely uh, right, Ian, to stress that it is a human uh, tragedy, and those people are desperate. They do not leave their country for fun. It's not a holiday. They're leaving because uh, their life is in danger. 
if they don't, they'll be killed by some dictators running their country. That's, that's the bottom line. And I think this is a point which, fortunately, uh, you do not uh, have discussed in, in, the, in the media in, in Britain or France, uh, or not so often. And I think, yes, yes, let's, let's uh, end the conversation on a positive note. Uh, of course, the population around Calais is divided. The far right is trying to inflame the situation, sometimes uh, manages, you know, to get some of the population to believe that, the, the, you know, migrants are responsible, they're not particularly in need, they shouldn't be there. But o- overall, people understand what, why they're there. And yes, there have been fantastic reaction from the local population, <coughs> giving, you know, uh, food, shelter, uh, some uh, welcoming uh, some migrants into their homes, and some spend weeks and months into homes. And it, it is remarkable, and I think uh, wherever those situations arise, I think people, there will always be people who will do the decent, the right thing, uh, which is to help those migrants, because that's, that's, if you can, that's what you need to do. Well, Dr. Philippe Malier, I thank you very much for joining us here today from the UK. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Philippe Malier. He's a professor in French and European politics at University College London. Before coming to University College London, he was a research fellow at the French Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique and at the European University Institute in Florence. And in 2007, Philippe Malier was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science by the University Libre de Bruxelles. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the human and financial costs of, of migration from Central America to the U.S. with 1.8 million Central Americans attempting to emigrate in the last five years at a cost of $2.2 billion every year, most of which goes to smugglers. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world below There is no sickness No toil nor danger In that bright land To which I go Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Sarah Williams, a Professor of Technology and Urban Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology where she's also Director of the Civic Data Design Lab and the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism. She's the author of Data Action, Using Data for Public Good and the co-author of a new report at the Migration Policy Institute charting a new regional course of action, the complex motivations and costs of Central American migration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Williams. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we just uh, were interviewing a French scholar at the University College in London about the drowning of 27 migrants, mostly from Iraq, in the English Channel last week. And then you had those horrible incidents on the border with Poland and Belarus, where the dictator in Belarus attracted emigrants largely from uh, Iraq and from the, the Middle East to come there and to embarrass the EU. Uh, and we've seen people drowning, of course, for the longest time in the English, in the Mediterranean, in a desperate attempt to get to Europe from these war-torn countries in the Middle East and in Africa. But here at home, we have a hideous situation on our southern border, and your new report indicates that 
in the last five years, 1.8 million immigrants from Central America have attempted to come to the United States at a cost of $2.2 billion every year, most of which goes to smugglers. So this is a shocking story and one that needs to be told. And thank you for bringing it to our attention. Well, of course, um, I was really excited to be able to work on the the project um, where we were able to interview uh, 5,000 uh, migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And what did you find? I mean, I think one of the biggest things, as you noted, is that, you know, just the sheer amount of money that is spent to migrate every year, um, you know, amounts to, you know, close to 10% of the GDP of some of these uh, countries. But I think one thing that I thought was really interesting is, you know, providing more legal channels to migrate can really, um, let's say, help reduce the cost, which is totally shouldered by the migrant right now. And what I mean by that is if you have legal visas for agriculture, legal visas for domestic workers, and other kinds of workers, you um, can reduce the cost by creating legal channels, not not having um, smugglers, but also those, uh, let's say, visas provide uh, funds to the migrant, help the economy of their home country by bringing money back to them, stimulating the economy, but also very much help uh, places like U.S., which are dependent on migrants, um, close to 74% of our agricultural workforce is migrants, and we're in a shortage of that workforce. So there's a need to increase these legal channels of migration, both to help the safety and cost to the migrants themselves. So there's an election today in Honduras, uh, which is considered a narco-dictatorship under President Juan Orlando Hernandez, whose brother is now doing life in American prison for smuggling 120 tons of cocaine into the United States. I repeat, 120 tons of cocaine into the United States. And he, of course, has a flunky running in his place since he's been termed out. And running against him is the wife of the former populist President Manuel Zelaya, who was ousted in a military coup 12 years ago. Is it likely that this election, I mean, it is likely that this election will be stolen by Hernandez, which happened last time. He stole the last election, so that's what he does. Will that lead to an even greater uptick in emigration from Central America? It's quite possible, and one of the things that we found, of course, is that the root causes of migration are these kinds of disruptions, both policy, climate disruptions, violence, um, that really affect the economics of these countries. And so, you know, as one political party comes in, other leaves, or um, other kinds of uh, really problematic types of violence happen in the company, it, you know, it does affect the economy. That effect on the economy, therefore, is translated to the people who then uh, seek out work, you know, outside of the country. I think one of the things that we find with migration is that there's often this pattern of uh, short spikes 
um, and let's say long waves is what Clemens calls them. And um, you often see short spikes after kind of political events, as you know. But then there's long waves, which are kind of more economic trends that persist over long periods of time. And I think in these three countries, we're seeing both those things at work, both kind of short spikes from climate, Uh, but also climate and other kinds of policy issues, such as you mentioned. But there's this longer sustained uh, wave of uh, economic issues in those countries that are being transferred to the populace that that are needing to migrate just to sustain their livelihoods. Well, in uh, El Salvador, it's run by a a really nasty neo-fascist. Bukele, who has instituted Bitcoin as the national currency, turning the country into a uh, money laundering haven. So, and then you've got these dreadful government in uh, Guatemala that's uh, a front for the military and for the drug dealers that's uh, behind the military. So, what about improving governance? Is that something that your study focused on? I mean, Vice President Harris went down there some time ago with that in mind, to make life better for the people in these countries so that they wouldn't have to emigrate to the United States. Is that at all realistic? Uh, This is a really good question, uh, and one of the things that we discussed a lot um, in developing the report. And for us, I think we try to think outside of, let's say, these governance uh, issues within the countries themselves. They're very hard to deal with, as you mentioned, um, each one of of these different countries have their own particular concerns, but what are the ways that we can address migration um, outside of the, say, these governance structures? So one of our recommendations, right, is increasing legal pathways for migration. Another recommendation is to uh, provide better aid systems for these countries. Um, And right, because at the root cause of all of this is just, a need to sustain the life. And many of these countries don't have the social services, you know, just basic, let's say, provision of food or housing that's needed um, for the poorest populations. And I think, you know, within our team, our status is like, we we might not be able to, let's say, uh, you know, have Guatemala or others, you know, make sure that they provide those sustaining life needs. But if we can encourage that others you know, provide the aid and necessity to do that, um, we can go a long way to helping address some of the causes, both of migration, but also just the extreme need in those countries um, and they uh, address just the fact that many of them can't um, afford just food, uh, put food on the, on the table. I would say also, you know, one of the things that we, you know, recommend is, um, for those people who migrants that have left and are making money to really have them c- use that funds in a more structured way to help infrastructure in those countries to help uh, kind of build up some of the economy, which would help deal with some of the kind of sustained economic issues that you note from uh, various political organizations. But I think it's important to note that we're not trying to, let's say, address, let's say, 
one political uh, party or president, we realize that this is a long wave and that these kinds of recommendations and we, and that we make in the report need to be also things that people from the outside can um, take care of. Well, it's not just immigrants from from Central America, from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, that 1.8 million came in the last five years. And I don't know what percentage of those people were stranded at the border or had to turn back. I imagine it's a pretty high percentage. But now you've got to add to that all of these immigrants from Haiti. We saw that whole situation mm -hmm. down on the bridge in Texas, on the border there. And now apparently there's an influx of immigrants from Venezuela as well. So this is a, a bigger problem than just Central America, is it not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this report obviously focuses on Cent Central American migration issues. But, you know, we know, as, as we saw um, just recently, as you noted, um, outside of Britain cases, and this is, you know, obviously a big issue of people migrating from Africa, um, Haiti, and elsewhere. Um, it is interesting that one thing that we've been discussing with the World Food Program is that there are many immigrants coming from Haiti and even Africa that are now involved in these smuggler routes through Mexico. And, and we're not exactly sure how they're all getting there and how they're getting through, but um, it's something that I know that our team is uh, thinking about and looking towards researching more uh, because it's a cer certainly a very interesting new situation that, you know, the Venezuelan migrants are combined with Haiti migrants and coming up through Mexico through these smuggler routes, um, which is a big issue. Well, just in closing then, emigration has become a political issue, clearly, and it was demagogued during the Trump administration and uh, I think Biden is pretty much on the defensive, and I think the American people are uh, pretty much turned against the idea of immigrants coming to this country, particularly from across the southern border. So is that likely to change? Are we to continue to have a fairly hostile attitude to uh, immigrants? Well, that's a good question, and I think one that's kind of as old as history itself in the U.S., kind of this debate about the new people coming to the United States. But I would say, and hopefully the pandemic has taught that, we really depend on immigrants for our economy. We depend on them. 74% of agricultural workers are immigrants, our domestic workforce, other workforce. Re uh, you know, We saw it a lot with restaurants in this past summer, not having enough uh, people to work in restaurants and vacation areas and so forth, we really, I think, need to recognize that migrants are an important, immigrants, I, as I should say, are an important part of the American economy and workforce. And I think when we begin to understand that, we can maybe change our mind about some of this really black and white way in which we see migrants right now. And I think but I think in this study, what we want to do is just highlight the migrant experience, explain ways that we can improve um, the situation and make some uh, basic recommendations, which policy takers like Camilla Harris can take on 
I mean, one thing that really shocked me is, you know, I, I, I mentioned this uh, workforce, you know, that 74% are migrants, you know, 90% of those are Mexicans. Um, and that's because they do have legal pathways to come to the U.S. And they have uh, basically intermediaries that help with that employment. Central American migrants don't have let's say, a system in place in which they can access and use these kinds of visas, mostly because they don't have intermediaries which can connect them to, to farms and farm working. So, mm. you know, I think, you know, that's like a one step, you know, Camilla Harris obviously um, stepped up and said she would be providing aid. But I think also these kinds of processes should not be underestimated in helping create more legal pathways, less smugglers, um, and a way for these migrants to really sustain their lives. Sarah Williams, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Williams, who's a professor of technology and urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she's also the director of the Civic Data Design Lab and the Leventhal Center for Advanced Urbanism. And she's the author of Data Action, Using Data for Public Good, and is a co-author of a new report at the Migration Policy Institute, Charting a New Regional Course of Action, The Complex Motivations and Costs of Central American Migration. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.